The Imposter Club is produced by talented people, staffing and headhunting company in TV production, with a mission to make the industry a happier, more creatively diverse place. In just a minute. By the end of it, I felt like a DOP without any training. Like, what am I doing with a full-on proper camera here, shooting 4K and managing four channels? And I felt like a one-man band when I should have had an orchestra. This is The Imposter Club, the podcast uniting all us TV, film and content folk secretly stressing that everyone else has it sorted except us. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, TV director turned staffing company founder, and each episode I want you to hear the real story of a successful industry figure, not the glossy announcements we usually see, but the truth of their career journey, including the bumpy bits, to help you make sense of your own health warning this podcast may incur whiplash from violent nodding plus an unfamiliar but hopefully welcome feeling of belonging documentary director and executive producer jenny popplewell is today's imposter in the club if you are into your docs it's hard to imagine a more enviable career with so much ownership of ideas and access to boot listen to this conceived pitched and directed american murder the family next door which broke the record for the most watched feature doc on netflix at the time seen by 52 million accounts in its first 28 days conceived pitched produced and self-shot channel 4's most watched cutting edge my big fat gypsy wedding which led to the very long running series pitched produced directed and self-shot jamie drag queen at 16 inspiration for the west end musical everybody's talking about jamie which i was dancing around my kitchen to this morning in prep oh and a hollywood movie starring rich lee grant and sarah lancashire amongst others all of this whilst bringing up a young family and negotiating her way through male-dominated directing territory. So I'm so keen to pick apart the whys and the hows of decision-making in Jenny's career, staying sane, hopefully, as well as successful. So welcome to the Imposter Club, Jenny. Thanks, Kimberly. What a lovely LinkedIn review <laughs> for <laughs> reading me my LinkedIn credits. Thank you. There you go. Just, you know calling it right back at you thanks you know bit of um kudos so i like to start by asking people straight off the bat how would you describe your relationship with imposter syndrome if you have one at all i do or i did i had a bigger relationship with the imposter syndrome early in my career i say it's now just a little voice at the table uh, amongst other triggering emotions that uh, i bring in in a sack on my back to every project and unload into in, into the project with me. Yeah, I say it's just one of many emotions that I, I carry around, but it's got smaller. It's got a lot smaller as as um, as I've progressed into the industry, but it doesn't mean it goes away completely. No, okay, well, we can dig into some of that and how it has changed or morphed into other things <laughs> over your career. Um, but said in a nutshell, like I just did, your films sound like dream roles for any director in documentary territory. Have you worked on things that you haven't been proud of <laughs> and or, or things that have sort of still got you to where you are today nonetheless? Uh, I'd firstly say this is like a pinch me moment because I don't think a couple of years ago that I would be 
imagining someone saying that about my, you know, effectively my CV going, is there anything you're not proud of? Or as I say, there's a period there where I'd be looking at it going like, come on, like you've got to sort this out. Like you want to make important films. You want to make talks about content. You're like working all hours. It's got to be for something. You can't be making filler. I hate making filler TV. I hate just putting something out to fill, fill the airwaves to get, you know, the advertising revenue and make it cheap and quick and get it out and get content out because actually cheap and quick just means blood sweat and tears and chaos our end as you're trying to do something in a six-week edit and hardly any crew and che- quick and cheap only services uh the networks it's a, such a drain on production crew and staff and yes we want to stay employed and we want to keep making that and often they're a great learning curve but um when you keep doing them and you keep making them you're you start to feel, what's the word, used, exploited. I feel you can feel exploited by it because everyone gets what they want, but you pay with your time and your effort and your energy and your uh, mental health at the end of it. I think those have been the hardest ones to make. The ones the ones that people think you're maybe less proud of on your CV are also the ones that are often the hardest to make. Uh, and you give your most, sometimes you've given your most of, most of yourself um, to make them. I can literally feel people nodding with their headphones in <laughs> as they're hearing you say that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes <laughs> like there are lots of things that we have to work on. It's a great learning curve in some ways. And you really learn to find story quickly and and make decisions quickly. And, you know, it can be a challenge and it, it's fun to rise to that challenge. But then after a period of time doing it again and again and again, you start thinking, this isn't the reason I got into television. And... I have to, I have to do something about it because no one's gonna be like, hey, sit down. Can we give you an opportunity of a lifetime? And I, well, some people might have that experience. I didn't. I didn't have someone open the door and say, please take a seat. It's been a little like bash down the door as opposed to knock gently on it. You have to really. I felt I had to fight. I had to fight for my seat at the table. I felt I've only just just stopped fighting. And now, yeah, wow. the imposter syndrome moment is. When people read out and say like, how are you great with your CV? I feel like it's only just happened in a moment. There is suddenly I can turn around and go, I'm proud of my career. So I think the imposter, syn- I think the imposter syndrome is because it feels like a blink in an 18 year career that I suddenly feel like, okay, the graph is, you know, I've dragged my way up here and like, you know, it's elbows. You roll your sleeves up and get your elbows out and you're like, you've got to keep fighting. You've got to keep, you know, you get told early in your career, you're only as good as your last credit. And then, you know, filled with dread as you start to see a contributor drop out or the channel change their mind or edit overrun and you're filled with panic. Like, oh, my reputation's in tatters and no one will hire me again. Or, oh, I'm going to be making series 27 of this forever because I'm not going to get an opportunity elsewhere. But, um, yeah, I found that I had to create my own opportunities to rise up to the next challenge and, and further my career. So how, well, gosh, so many questions. <laughs> Firstly, why why do you think you didn't have a seat at the table then for so many years? Well, I think it changed over the, I think our industry has seen change and I've seen it and now I'm 42. I started in my 20s, you know, I'm 18 years in this. And I think I've seen technology change through the career. You know, we started off on tape. Our runner role literally meant taking a tape to the channel, you know, to, for on the tube for them to put it, put it out that night. Um, our industry's changed. You've had to evolve with technology. I started off as a shooter and I was shooting on what was a glorified, you know, handy cam. By the end of it, I felt like a DOP without any training. Like, what am I doing with a full on proper camera here, shooting 4K and managing four channels and of audio and like 
what is, I felt like a one man band when I should have had an orchestra. And I, I just felt, so I felt our industry has seen change. So I would say that at any one point, my fight has changed as well. I don't, I don't think my fight is just the same at the beginning as it was at the end. I think in the early days, and we're, we're going back pre-me to pre-positive pre hires, I, I, I heard this, I don't know if you've heard it before, but I've heard it from, from a company I started out in. Uh, girls are good on the phone, boys are good with cameras. Wow, and no, that was, I mean, I had that sense, but <laughs> that, never heard that. That was, that, was, that was the role, that was the route in the companies I started. So you, you were filtered in the early days, like girls were off to be APs and researchers and you were making phone calls and trying to secure contributors and keeping them on side. And the boys were filtered over into kit management and camera assistant, and then suddenly they're shooting and then suddenly they're director. Now, I think that doesn't just hold back women, that holds back boys as well. As soon as you like divide people in a skill set and you just cut them off, from the 360 that you need to do your job. So you felt, you know, I, I've spoken to male directors now that said there was a period in their career where they really struggled because the roles they needed to be taking were AP level, but people were hiring females. Right. Oh, interesting. And then, yeah. And then, then women were saying, you know, we're producers and APs and then we can't make that step because they're like, you know, can we see your shooting? I need to see your show reel. And you're like, well, I'm barely allowed to touch the camera. Did you want to direct? Yeah. Um, but you were only getting producer opportunities then for a certain period. I would say I wanted to direct for years. I always knew that was the role I wanted to go into, but um, I stayed in each role for a long time. And I think, I, I, looking back, I don't think that was a bad thing. Sometimes I've worked with people that I think it's not fair on them, it's not fair on the crew, that, and I can see people have been promoted too quickly. And I think, yes, I'm always there. To, I, I want to help them through that, that role and that jump but at the same time it's kind of a mirror up to be like, this is why you spent, it's not one credit, move up, one credit, move up, one credit, move up, or two credits. Move up. You learn so much in those roles and you have to be a master of your craft before you take on the next one. So sometimes I do. There's a balance, isn't yeah. there, between like being in a role for too long because you're not getting the opportunities and you deserve them, but being in a role long enough that you you do it thoroughly and well and are then confident enough to to move up right so did you did you find that you weren't getting those opportunities soon enough I felt like have you ever heard the saying if you don't want to do the washing up don't do it well yeah yeah I felt like I washed up quite well as a producer and I should have probably left some soap sauce on the plate for a little bit longer I think I think right at the end and at that period and again that sounds quite smug doesn't it like hey I was a fantastic producer and everybody wanted to keep me as a producer but no what it was I don't think it does sound I, I think I just think it sounds like people took you for granted and and didn't want you to promote because you were brilliant at what you were doing <laughs> I think I had a skill set as a, I don't know I, I see producers now at, on the films I work on and they are better producers than I was when I was a producer but I think at that period where tv was when I was making television as a producer I felt like I was quite good at finding securing access or just working hard to be like no stone left unturned and coming up with ideas it's just always ideas how to find the next person how to like tell this story this hasn't worked this hasn't worked these people aren't speaking how are we going to finish this film so I felt I was an asset to a PD at that time but unfortunately that meant that as another series or another series came around another series came around you could find yourself still in those roles because you did that well you you know when I think of you actually pre-American murder I think of you being in an exec producer job for a long time at one company um, on lots of things, but you know, one of which was a returning Channel 5 series, which was you know super successful. But I, I don't think I could have ever envisaged you as an exec then suddenly becoming 
this director of the most watched ever Netflix featured doc. I mean, how did that happen? The reason I went back to, I'd had three children. So I'd had my first and then just before he turned two, I gave birth to twins. So I had three under two. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, full, full, hands, hands full, uh, heart full, hands full. Um, whilst pregnant with Harvey or whilst pregnant with the twins, I was a shooting director or a, a, I was directing films. So working due to the pregnancies, but then as soon as they finished, I was like, right, I just want to be there for my children. I want to focus, you know, they're only little once. So I, I knew I was going to step away. I went back when the twins were one and found this role with Jonathan Stadlin where um, I'd pitched him, a, I'd, okay, during the time the twins were little, I'd got access to people leaving a cult and started to film that. As you do, As you, do, you know, just, just a just, usual mat leave. Just you know, usual mat leave. <laughs> having coffee and Starbucks <laughs> and then, oh, look, I've got access, access to, to a cult. cult. So I, I started work on that and then pitched it around then Jonathan found a director to finish that film. Um, and I gave him some notes on the film at the end and he said, I think you could be an exec. I think you should come work for me as an exec. And, you know, that was going to be a part-time role, two days a week. That quickly became three days a week. And quickly, before you know it, you're working five days a week and evenings and weekends because there was so much on and it got hectic. You know, as a concertina, you'd have periods of quiet and then full-on crazy craziness. But that was when they were one. But I, I always knew that execing fitted my family life at that time. And it wasn't the reason I'd got into television. And it was fun for five years to, like, support other filmmakers and learn about compliance and really see budgets and understand the process from from that side and I, I definitely think it's changed me as a director now and I really understand more of like how that side works but I'd always said when the twins when they started school when they turned five I'd want to return to directing um that this was only going to be a stopgap for me and then I um come up with American Murder the boys were four and we we're pitch we we're pitching it to a couple of places um and then, and were you in development at that time as, as no, well? Then alongside no, executing, no, I was executing. I just, just I was just a development. So this is like a side yeah, hustle. Yeah, I always develop. Right. Always this idea is obsessed with like, can't help. like the cult side yeah. hustle while you're at soft play. This was a um, you know a story that captured you. Why do you think you felt so personally passionate about it to do so much extra work? on it and get it through you know did you have your own agenda as well because you wanted to direct I actually it? didn't I didn't actually want to do it. so I didn't realize that I was going to direct that film I was just hiring a team so I'd I'd hired Simon Barker incredible ed editor um and just gathering a team and had put forward some names for the director and the, the net you know Netflix were asking to keep thinking and then suddenly I was like wait realizing this was going to start in September and my boys were starting school in September I was suddenly like, hold on, this this is it. This is this is the film. This is this is the one I should go back. And I I could see it so clearly in my head. So then just suddenly felt like actually I've handed too many away. I felt like there were films I've also come up with that then I didn't direct. And you suddenly feel like I'm never going to have that hit again. I'm then you're not going to have that success again. And I handed that. That became somebody else's baby, somebody else's project. It's, it's like giving something up for adoption. You're just suddenly like, hold on, I've just given this away, and this became a big hit and it's a big hit because they made it and it's how they visage it and it, you can't take credit for their film of course at the same time you're like, I've done that much and I was like actually I just something niggling at me said like don't give this one away like keep hold of this one like you believe in this one keep hold of it you're not going to want to miss this I talk to people now and they, they tell you horror stories of projects they've worked on where execs are screaming and shouting and cameramen are being mean and a director's been rude. So when you feedback like, oh, that's not worked, what they hear is you're failing again. You shit, you fucked up. 
Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote, you can just log in on your phone, tablet, or desktop to collect, store, and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month and with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conotes.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. You're listening to The Imposter Club, and I'm talking to Jenny Popplewell. Did you have to convince Netflix? Like, did, did you have to do any work to show them how you would direct? Um, I, I don't know behind the scenes what was going on. Um, I can imagine they weren't high-fiving going, yes, got Jenny Popperwell to direct this. Woo, pop the champagne. I think, I imagine <laughs> they probably wanted to keep a close eye on me for the first couple of months, just to, you know, on that first cut and probably just see how it goes. Probably, I think it was really good of them to give me that opportunity and that chance to not just say no you're not going to do it and we're going to go with an experienced director and you can be uh, you know continue your role as exec producer or like the fact that I said no I really want to do this and I've been a director just not in this space um forever grateful that, that they gave me that opportunity but I do think you directing that for the first time as of you know never having done a feature doc or you know retrospective storytelling or n- not evidenced it to a global streamer is a fantastic example as to why we shouldn't and hiring managers, streamers, bosses shouldn't just always go for the person who's got exactly the right credits. Because look what you did with it. You brought a take that was totally yours, influenced by your passion in it and your own ideas and probably fed in by you being a mum, lived experience, you know, how you might tell that story, I don't know. But you know, just just going with someone because they've had they've done a very similar thing before should not be the go-to, in my opinion. Uh, firstly, also can't say the success is it's lays at my feet. I would say yes, I had the initial idea and had a vision in air quotes here, um, but massively, massively spoiled by an insanely good editor, Simon Barker, and then you know Johnny Taylor and Zainab and Kate and. That their notes that came in, you know, there's six rounds of notes, and each time you're like, oh yes, or, or your question challenged, like this isn't working. How do you, you know that it's so collaborative? And I don't think people realise how collaborative 
it has to be to 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 bring those films up to that standard like you have an it's, it's such a like tag team you have an idea you, you present something someone else questions something you change it you challenge sometimes it, it doesn't work and you move back again but but you've got the time to do that as you go back and forth until your final product yeah, that's amazing is the best it can be and if i handed in the film that i cut in the first 10 weeks versus what it was 10 weeks later like that would have been what i would have made and this is the collaboration so i think you have to just re- realize it's you can't do it on your own so in that role then that you had elbows out <laughs> got yourself into that edit to cut your passion project with your vision were there moments there where you thought fuck i can't i can't do this this is really hard on that one do you know what i felt that that's one that i've always I think because I saw it from the beginning and really knew what we were going to do. I think even when there was a challenge or something was difficult, we had hard notes or a section really wasn't working or, you know, we could spend four weeks cutting three minutes and we could spend, you know, four weeks cutting the other, the rest of the film. Like, you know, so it's, it's not <laughs> proportionate to the time on screen as to how long you can spend focusing on one section. So I think for that one, just because I believed in it so much and was determined to do it, I don't, I, I felt like my fighting spirit was on that. I felt like that just kept me being like that was I was very can do on that one. I think there's other times where you are hand I don't remember this at the beginning of my of my career. You're handed a project from a development team and they're like, This has been commissioned, you start and on day one you realise it's been oversold and you're about to under deliver. And you're just like, Oh no. And there's those moments where you're literally like, oh, and it's so hard not to be the pessimist and shoot the messenger and being like, guys, this is never going to happen. This is, we can't do this. This organization won't be involved. Those contributors said they won't be on camera. Like you can find all the reasons why it can't be done. And I think there's definitely times that we come home and go like, what am I doing? I give up. Like, this is insane. And then actually sometimes when it does come around and at the end of that program, you somehow manage to pull off content and it and it's worked sometimes you could be you just have to relish in that moment and just be like wow that really never nearly didn't you know didn't nearly happen but I think is it mindset is it chance I know I say like tv gods are smiling there's times where they definitely have it in for you and it's just like you know you have a week of like content being pulled because legals or dropout or lost footage or like some you know it's just one thing it's like who doesn't rain it pours it's just like one thing after another and you're just like I can't take any more um and then you can just suddenly have loads of like, almost like lucky breaks. And you just think like, is this luck? Is it the right team? Is it just circumstance? Have we had our fair share of bad luck? Like, so I guess you just have to focus on when it is going well, just appreciate that it's going well because you've certainly ridden enough storms to know that this that they don't always run smoothly. Yeah. I mean, do you feel now like you've made it, that you're not worried anymore about your next gig or um, making something that doesn't work or burning out? No, no, I wouldn't say that. I say, I was talking to someone about this the other day. I say it's something, it feels a bit like second album uh, fear. Like you feel like you've had a hit now. So everyone's like, well, now your next one has to be the, like suddenly this is, is it a bar you set yourself? Is it only you keeping it in check? Are your peers looking at you going, well, that was a flop. Why are you working on that? So I think or oh she was that was clearly other people that were helping her make that film so she just got a lucky break and she rode their coattails like you you, and they're the inner voice and you just think I don't think about that I don't think that of anyone else in the industry so you know that these little voices and that's what I say about the imposter syndrome it's not necessarily imposter syndrome it's a whole chorus of voices which is like your own self-doubt in other ways that chirp in and unreason that you can be unreasonably critical of yourself um 
and you just think, why am I doing that? And I think that's just something creative people do because that is our work. You put yourself into your work, you present it for the world and any criticism of that, of which happens in our industry from the moment the project starts until until delivery, there's going to be notes, there's going to be things that aren't working, people have disagreements, like you are putting yourself out there to receive uh, rejection and criticism. But it's just how you have to just have a, a hard skin. You have to just embrace it and realize the criticism and the rejection isn't uh, about you. It's not like you are terrible. You can't do your job. Who thinks you should? And I think that's imposter syndrome. It's where you take criticism right. as of a product as personal attack on your ability to do your job. And it's not. You've got that job and you've had those experiences and you know and they know you can do the job. The criticism and that is about the project and it's about enhancing and improving it because it's their project too. They're the commissioner, they're the exec. It's that it's not just your work, it's their reputation, it's their project. They all want to succeed. They're all helping you to make your project better. So Yes. So it's it's almost like you have to separate that out very clearly within yourself and for other people and go, okay, this is my portrayal of it, but in order for it to be the best it can be, I need to accept the feedback from others about the project, not about me as a person yeah. being rubbish at my job, yeah. for example. I think you can be very triggered and also you just have to remember you've got your colleagues as well. We've all come from different experiences and you you know, I, I talk to people now and they, they tell you horror stories of pro- projects they've worked on where execs are screaming and shouting and cameramen are being mean and a director's been rude and there's strops happening you know they're coming to the next project with that baggage and you don't know what they're coming with so when you feedback like oh that's not worked oh in future can you do and you've said in future can you make sure that you add this blah blah, you know you give them a steer what they hear is you're failing again you shit you fucked up and that's not that and that doesn't mean you need to be gentler in how you you are asking your advice it's just a being aware that in your peer set we have all had different experiences we've all come from different jobs and some of us had a really tough time recently um for example literally like just weeks ago perhaps they're just recovering some people are quite triggered from their last productions and i think um the imposter syndrome there is of course you're going to take it personally because it keeps happening to you people keep and someone can have have made the job personal so rather than um this contributor's dropped out it's suddenly why didn't you keep them why didn't you check on why didn't it's, it's all very you 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 so do you think a lot of the um imposter syndrome is is fed by blame culture mm-hmm. yeah i think it sounds like that doesn't it that if you're constantly not being supported by your managers or bosses and blamed for things then that does make you doubt your ability, which like you say, you're then carrying about from to the next one. But but also actually, perhaps you're not getting enough constructive criticism or actual feedback mm. to do it better next time. Therefore, you are repeating the same mistake again and again, which is then going to get you or knock your confidence when people call it out. I think when your confidence is shot, it's really hard to rebuild it and to stay strong again. And then it just becomes this almost self-fulfilling prophecy, it like keeps happening and you get in a cycle and then, and then you become what people can say about you so I think it's not just there's a blame culture it's also there's not enough like support when things do go well you know you everyone will go great it rated well done and you're on to the next project you have like five seconds and a rap party yeah. if you're lucky to celebrate they're like oh my god we pulled it off anyway where are we with the release you know like suddenly you're on the next project and actually you could spend you know six months on a project and four months of them could have been hard graft with lots of like meetings about what went wrong and why and then a 10 minute email at the end where everyone said, well done guys, we've got a Guardian review. You know, and that's just like, it could be all all stick and no carrot. And I think 
that if you're in a in a blame culture environment is one side that can feed into imposter syndrome because you can take it personally but then also never hearing when you've done a good job and never hearing wow you've re- someone pulling you it's really important to your peers they're a part of your team and you're all helping create this product they're you know leaving their family at weekends they're missing weddings and events and organize you know family time or friend time you know personal time to 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 finish this film with you um production coordinators production managers your lawyer like everybody is working onto this and when something has worked out and that you know your archive producers found something incredible don't just go oh they've got it and then you talk in the edit and you're like they've done it and that's it and it's a thankless task like come back and say flipping it where where did you find that oh my god that's amazing you're incredible how did you and listen to them for five minutes as they tell you they knocked on summer store and found it in the basement like just acknowledge when other people in your team have done a really good job because you know that three weeks ago they were getting it in the in the neck because something they said had cleared never delivered and it's been lost and they haven't got the master and you know it's all gone wrong so all your peers are also hearing the same negative voice that i think that and what does it cost Mm. to to be supportive and positive in the right places right it costs nothing and it means everything and especially when you're moving around as a freelancer thanklessly all the time I I can remember the people who who genuinely took the time to thank me um, after a difficult project or after something that had gone wrong, um, and you know stayed in touch with them and always wanted to work with them again. And then I can certainly remember the people who were really not supportive and were a nightmare and dented my confidence because I to this day I wouldn't I wouldn't work with them again even if they offered me an amazing project. So I do think it's you know you have to be careful and respectful um on your way around i mean what about as as a as a boss when you're leading a a project whether that's as a director i suppose or as an exec and you're sort of in a position of power does it feel lonely Uh, i think in those positions you've got some things that people are you know there's there's things that people are aware of you and how you're doing and have you, you know, sorry guys, I know you had to work late, you know, are you okay with the notes when you're on holiday? People are very aware of you. And at the same time, you're aware that other team members, people haven't noticed that they're not consistently done an email or that they're, um, that they're on holiday. And, you know, some people are like messaging going, why are you replying? They're like, I'm on holiday. You know, you, you can, you can be aware that you can stand out and suddenly become important and visually people know your presence on a film and i think sometimes you can feel guilty about that because you remember what it was like when nobody gave two hoots about the fact you were on your 16 day in a row you were like guys really need a day off and they're like really when did you have you not had a day off um i think those those roles so i think there's not lonely as such i think you're aware that you are treated differently and as you're treated differently you didn't make yourself get treated differently you're just aware that you're treated differently you're aware that people want to sit down and have conversations with you at the table and other people can't join the meeting and then they just they get an update and you're like hold on that ap is just as involved as me they've met the contributor i'm i'm third-hand information you know i can't the ap come to the meeting or that there's moments like that where you're aware that some people are out in the cold and you've suddenly got the seat so i don't feel lonely i sometimes feel a sense of i don't know if it's shame or guilt that suddenly i'm in the seat and i can still see people out in the cold so i still i yeah. do i feel separate from their than theirs where you know at the rap party there's this real sense of every they've had a different lived experience where everyone's like you know comparing war stories and you can't join that because you were treated differently right. so um so is there almost a sense that uh, you're, you're kind of put on a bit of a pedestal 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say, definitely, you know, there's no, no one like laying out a red carpet and saying, can I get you your coffee? But there's, <laughs> you, I just think you feel seen. By the time you're the director, I think you feel seen. And I don't think as a woman in TV, I felt seen until I was the director. Um, and I think feeling seen is nice when finally you're seen, but then you also have to remember what it was like before you were seen. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm the perfect boss in any way. Right now, I'm sure if someone was listening, they'd be like the edit assistant being like, ha! She only came in and spoke to me three <laughs> times. So I didn't get very seen in her. So that's definitely like practice what you preach. Know what you need to do better. And I think um, when you get really busy and when there's a lot on, it's very easy to only be in your bubble with like you and your editor and maybe your exec. And then I'm probably guilty. Of, I, yeah, in fact, you know, this is like therapy. I'm probably guilty of that. I think as it gets tougher, I can end up in a smaller, a smaller bubble. And then you ha you can't forget your whole wider team that are making this with you. Coming up, if you don't feel someone's going to attach you to a film, get a film and attach yourself to it. Like I came in packaged inside an idea and I made the idea so appealing that I'm like, sorry, I come with it. <laughs> so that was my MO. That's how I did it. I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. The Imposter Club podcast is to help you feel less alone. Go and share it with someone you know who'd benefit. Now back to the chat. So, you know, you said you carry around other things in this backpack of mixed emotions yeah. of being a creative person in the TV industry. What what other things do you beat yourself up about then? I think I beat myself up about being a rollover, like a pushover. An absolute, I was such a mug, I think, when I started. And I, I now I just want to shake that 20-something year old, year old and just be like, why? Like, you were just so wet. I was so worried about like people not hiring you again or just wanting them to like me and being like, okay, yes, you can have my idea. No, don't, oh, you only want to make me the researcher on it. Okay, oh, you, I'm only going to be the AP. Oh, I, I shot and asked the questions. Okay, I'll be the producer. Like there was just accepting, kind of just being happy to be in the room almost and not realizing what now looking back, like what I was doing and the credits that I would have been giving out now for those roles or how I recognized I would have made some members of the team um I don't know I feel a bit like I don't know what happened I don't know how I don't know how it happened actually I just feel like maybe some sometimes people take your kindness for weakness and I think you can get exploited if you if you keep your head down you do a good job and then you can watch other people um go off like you know I'd have ideas that get commissioned they were given to other directors because they'd had an extra film and then you could be that producer or you could be their AP. You're quite capable of making that film. And I don't think that would happen now. And that is what's good. I think that's changed. Like as a, you know, there's much more focus on, you know, hiring female directors or, you know, diverse hires. And I think that that's so important because you know, I used to have to fight for my place to film a birth film. And I was like, hold on, I'm filming a, a documentary about a lady in her living room giving birth. And it's just her and her husband. I think 
they'd probably prefer a female drone. Those things just weren't a given. Whereas if you were, you know, going to be filming Bear Grylls, you were going to be, that was just a given that it was going to be a male director. Okay. So I just think. So perhaps some of the stereotypes that existed, mm -hmm. what, 15 years ago, are, are you, you, you think are no longer existent or at least are much better? I think it's changing. I don't think it's there yet. But I think there is an onus. Everyone's aware whether they agree or not, or whether they think it's a mistake or, a, you know, there'll definitely be old school people that are doing the higher thinking. Ugh. This is a tick box. Ah, oh, why have we hired this person? We're only doing it to because the channel one or because we're supposed to. But they they have a preferred hire or they think this should be a guy director or they think it should be this person or you know that they have an opinion separate to who's being hired. But all that needs to happen is the door needs to open and then once you've got the opportunity, you can prove yourself. But if the door's firmly shut, then you can know you know how do you ever get the opportunity to prove that you are capable? Yeah. So I don't think when people think about the diverse hiring in any form that people think like oh it's just a it's just a token hire it, it's not about that it's about like I said, it's about opening the door to an opportunity and then that person would lose their job quite quickly if they can't deliver like you know you're replaced you're just basically saying here's your moment and everyone needs that moment everyone needs the door to open and whichever way you can get that to happen like knock on the door bash on the door pick lock the door whatever you've got to do like get in that door yeah. and and then it's up to you then it's then you're you know in charge of your own destiny in charge of your own career but it's it's the higher, the, the focus on the higher is important because it, it just suddenly means everyone's got the opportunity to prove themselves. Yes. Do you remember there being a kind of light bulb moment of you thinking, hold on, I am being a pushover here. I'm going to have to get a bit feisty or a bit, um, a bit more assertive to progress. Yeah, there's a bit that I can't really talk about the exact film because obviously it ruffles some feathers, but there's been films one or two times where I've had a few things that I have developed, secured the access, come up with, it's been pitched, ready to go, then it's taken from you because you're staff and, oh, we've got someone better in this. And I can see, again, it's like, it's as I was saying there before, it's risk adverse, it's, it's, it's all those reasons. But at the same time, you're like, if you're always going to say, okay, all right yeah yeah that makes sense for the good for the good of the company for the good that you have to then say like how often am I going to say no and how many other directors had I been around where I'd watch them argue about credits or argue about uh their role or what was expected or the hours they worked I could see people standing up for themselves and was like yeah you do that then I didn't do it for myself and I think you do you know at the same time I think it was only because I got burnt a few times on other films where I'd watch, you know, films that I've now not made and I've developed and was ready to direct and I didn't, that I probably fought to make American Murder. So eventually I felt, I felt that was a very like cathartic experience to then make that. It meant so much because it was a story I believed in and I could have easily, when they said, or, you know, other people that I could have been like, do you know what? Yeah, I'll exact this. This is, this is right. I'll direct the next one. Like I'm sure this, you know, this isn't right for me. And that makes total sense that actually I had the fighting spirit from learned experience that at the time it just feels like a real, you know, carrying that emotional burden of being like, God, I've, I've hindered my own career by not being standing up for myself enough. But then later you realize it's put you in exactly the right position in the right fighting mode to fight for what really counts. And I think had I got the others, Maybe I, well, have we got the others? Maybe they wouldn't be asking if I could have directed it. They'd be like, yeah, of course you're going to direct yeah, maybe. it. maybe. Um, <laughs> but I get it. It's like you're, yeah, you you may have only got that, the, 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 you know, the perfect role for you that did what it did for your career and your own personal, you know, development because you've been burnt before. I mean, have you got, 
do you have advice for people who are feeling like you did back then now? Yeah, I say just look for opportunities. There's opportunities every in lots of places. Obviously, I know difficult time in, in the industry right now. Um, but there are lots of initiatives around. There's like, when I, I was just on one at the minute uh, recently, there was a Netflix documentary fund um, for shorts. So I, I did like the first cut strand. I did the fresh strand for BBC, like for first time directors. Like I joined as many and entered as many of those initiatives to get that. And those are great. It's looking for the training schemes. It's looking for like going, you know, sometimes Sony will do a free like camera training session or, you know, subsidized or, there's one to watch schemes or there's going to Sheffield or Edinburgh TV. Like there's things that you can get on and mingle and mix. And that's networking. It's going, yeah, I think just being hungry for it and going on those schemes is, is, um, is worthwhile. But I think if you, if you, for me, the advice would be, if you don't feel someone's going to attach you to a film, get a film and attach yourself to it and then come as a package. And I think that was my, that was like my Trojan horse. Like I came in packaged inside an idea and I made the idea so appealing that I'm like, sorry, I come with it. <laughs> so I felt that was my, that. that was my MO. That's how I did it. Force their hand hey, by will... dangling the most amazing <laughs> access and idea and it's only to be made with you. You just have to, see, yeah. So I think there's like Jamie, for example, Jamie Drag Queen, he came to, the, he emailed the company and they did say, I'll go off and shoot a taste to take with him. Like I didn't, force my way into that story but I would also say that his story wasn't resonating I would say massively with anyone in the industry at that time I know he'd emailed lots of in, lots of um, indies and no one had even replied to him and it was always going to be like a BBC3 type documentary but I think for that one it was about um, being like if I'm going to tell this story I'm going to know everything about it and I, I did not stop thinking about that film like I was uh, that I made that in like three parts, like off and on, because I was making um, gypsy weddings at the same time. So I'd go off and film a bit of gypsy weddings, wait for some more f weddings to come by, and then we'd go off and do another stint on Jamie because it happened over like a six month period, a five month period before the edit. I think just constantly, I kept talking to um, Laura Elling. She was the researcher on that, and just constantly like discussing his story and his themes. And the more we fleshed out, it could have been such a surface level story, so thin. But I think if you really care about a project or a story, just like, I think you have to live and breathe it. I think not like, I don't, I'm not saying like lose your work-life balance. I'm just saying like, enjoy that subject, enjoy talking about it, be hungry to know more about it. And that will come through in the film. The more and more I experience, you know, both the hiring side and, you know, working within the creative industry, the more I think it is like 90% to do with attitude of the right person. Because I would always rather hire someone who's got, ingredients on their CV to the right thing or you know obviously a certain level of skill set to perform the job that you're considering them for but if they don't have the right personality grit determination hunger you won't get the film that you want you won't get the results that you want and it comes across like you say and actually I think there's no excuse these days for God, I sound like a pretty old person when you say these days. These days, these kids, these days. <laughs> these days, oh my God. But there really isn't any excuse for not doing your research and actually not hustling to an extent because you can shoot stuff on your phone. You can mess it, you can contact pretty much anyone now via social media. Um, just you can find them so much easier than when you and I were probably embarrassingly still flicking through like a phone book or yellow pages. I used to call the pubs. Do you have Me too. a clientele that comes in who has a dog? Uh, we're looking for people doggo. <laughs> God. How Honestly, did... that's what I did. Yeah. 
I was um I was an AP on Wife Swap and I used to um ring pubs or um Hairdress. fish and chip shops. Hairdressers. They were pretty good. Hairdressers are great. Oh, I know someone who'd yeah. be great. Oh, who tells me their life yeah, story. Yeah. Do that. She's in on Tuesdays. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Loved it. But like like you you were doing, you were hustling yeah. and finding access and developing stuff along the side, trying to also juggle life, I know. But there is a lot of opportunity there now and I know it is really hard to to do that um, alongside a job or even when you're not working and you don't have any money at all. But there are ways and means to make yourself visible, I think. Um, yeah, I think that the hunger for it, I'm not saying like everyone needs to become a workaholic and I would say I definitely know I have got absolutely appalling work-life balance. It's the number, like, it's the number one thing I need to totally work on and I don't know how to work on that and I'm going to need to... I don't know, figure that out over the next year because it's not sustainable. Call a real therapist, yeah. not me. Dr. Kimberly, I need to sort <laughs> this out. I just, I, I I need to work on it because you can't live it, you can't work in that gear all the time and you can't, and like I was saying, it's the other voices that come in. Is it imposter syndrome or is it actually more like now you found your seat at the table, now you've raised your own bar, now you're like, oh shit, the expectations have got higher, the quality of my work has to be up there and I, I now has to, keep, I have to keep rising to the challenge and I like, Right, proving myself on a proving different level. Proving yourself, yeah, and I, I feel like that can result in like insane hours and, um, yeah, just hard graft again. And I, it's not like I'm saying like, hey, I'd like to coast for a while. I'm just saying like, I just need to. No, so, but look at that. the lady that... going off on holiday tomorrow. I mean, let's not feel sorry for well, me. Well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but no, even the fact that you've had to sort of justify, not that I'm saying I want to coast, right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You, all you're saying is you need to be able to have some life outside of work and know and be able to rein it in and back appropriately, flexibly for the right thing mm. at the right moment. Yeah. But you've gone, I don't, I just doesn't mean that I can't yeah. work really hard. It is, it's, in, it's inherent, I think. It's still burnt into that you're only as good as your last credit thing, right? There's something about, I think it's early, like oh, constantly trying to prove yourself and be heard and be seen that then when you are, you can't stop that fight. And again, it's not about coasting. It's now about saying, right now, I've uh, now I can just exist in this space. You still, you can't take off those boxing gloves. You can't stop that fight and need to be seen, heard, and prove yourself. And that stays with you. And that that desire to keep fighting and keep showing and proving your worth, um, I think, because it starts so early at the beginning of your career. When do you take that half and just say, okay, now I'm now I'm just I'm in the pit with everybody else and I'm the same as everyone else? Like you don't. I think you keep that attitude and it's really hard to step away from it because I think it's counterproductive and it leads to like being a workaholic and it leads to like mental health issues and that inner voice, which is sometimes coined as imposter syndrome. And it's not just the imposter syndrome; it, that's just one of many voices that yeah. are actually instead just baggage from past experience. Where it's more about self-esteem and taking it any kind of feedback is criticism because you're your own critic you're your worst critic but I think it's yeah it's exhaustion it is exhausting having to think like that all the time and you need to stop that because look at what you've done in your career and you're doing other brilliant stuff I know that you know you can't tell me about but um I'm I'm really thankful for you being so open about about this because I do think it's very easy for for people who are still making it in their career or trying to carve their way up to assume that getting to the point of directing a huge streamer doc is easy or at least maybe it wasn't easy doing it but you got there in a way that was I don't know somehow otherwise easier than what people are experiencing now so I'm so grateful for you being really honest about the juggle and the burnout and the imposter syndrome 
plus rucksack of other emotions. <laughs> so thank you, yeah, very much, Jenny, for being part of the Imposter Club. You have a you have a big warm hug from us all because none of us really know what we're doing, do we? <laughs> I mean, do we? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. It felt like a therapy session. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the Imposter Club, brought to you by talented people. I'm Kimberly Godwell and it has been lovely to hang out with you while you commute slash gym slash dog walk or whatever you're doing. If this has struck a chord, please go ahead and share it with your friends in that closed WhatsApp group I'm not in or on your social networks. Our aim is to reach as many fellow imposters as we can to share love and learnings and create a sense of belonging. And if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an episode drop. Thank you to Talented People, produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, exec producer, Rosie Turner, editor, Ben Mullins. See you later. And thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.